So we're in John chapter 11 today. If you want to follow this as I go through it, I'm going to be preaching through the whole of chapter 11. So you may want to have your Bibles open. Friends, I've struggled to prepare this talk for this morning. Um, Just to consider how on earth to unpack this incredibly powerful chapter of John's Gospel in under a quarter of an hour. So there are inevitably going to be gaps in what I will say, but I pray for all of us that God will speak to us through his word this morning. And for those of you who like a title, and for whom the title might be the only thing you remember in a few days' time, this talk is called The Last Sign, because this was Jesus' last miracle before he set his face to Jerusalem. So let's go back 2,000 years to early spring AD 33. Trouble is brewing for Jesus with the religious leaders following the healing of a blind man in John chapter 9. The Pharisees feel threatened, and if you remember, they rejected the evidence before them. We read in chapter 9 how they reacted to the blind man's testimony. Firstly, they tried to get his parents to deny that he'd actually been born blind, and then they said this, if you remember, you were born entirely in sins, and are you trying to teach us? And John tells us that the blind man was then driven out of the synagogue. So as his time has not yet come to escape this threat of violence in Jerusalem, Jesus goes across the Jordan, we read, to the place where John had been baptizing earlier. It's probably in the area of the Peria on the east side of the Jordan. So at the moment, he's north of that in this Peria area. So while he's there, Jesus receives a message from Mary and Martha. Their brother Lazarus was ill, and they wanted Jesus to come urgently. This unusual little family were among Jesus' closest friends. And I say unusual because we had three single siblings living together. And in this situation, you know, the death of the brother would have left Mary and Martha destitute because the inheritance passed to the nearest male relative. So Mary and Martha were sure that Jesus would come immediately. But Jesus gives a very strange reply to the messenger. This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus gives a hint of what will happen, and he deliberately waits two days. When Jesus finally decides to go to Bethany, his disciples argue with him. Bethany on the Mount of Olives is just about two miles from Jerusalem, and it's dangerous to go back there now. In verse 18, we read, Rabbi, the Jews were just now trying to stone you, and are you going there again? And Thomas cheerfully sums up the mood. Let us also go, that we might die with him. 
Well, when she hears that he's coming, Martha runs out of Bethany to meet Jesus and says what could be a statement of belief or a rebuke. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then remarkably, she follows this with a strong affirmation of faith. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. And Jesus tells her, your brother will rise again. Note how Martha misunderstands. I know that he will rise at the last day, she says. She clearly knows her Old Testament. Jesus then turns to her with an amazing revelation about himself, which has echoed down through the millennia. It's a statement which has lost some of its impact, thanks to being intoned as a meaningless platitude at funerals, often in TV police dramas. But let's listen to it again. I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He asks Martha. In her grief and confusion, she couldn't have grasped what Jesus was about to do, but she replies with full trust in who he is. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. So Jesus goes to the tomb and we read in verse 33 that he's deeply moved and he begins to weep. Note that the Greek word used here for deeply moved has a much more powerful force. It implies anger, even rage. Why then this grief and anger when he knew he would raise Lazarus? Well, the writer Philip Yancey says this, Well, I think that Jesus wept because he was fully human as well as fully God. He felt the pain and the shock of death. He wept as a man for the suffering of his friends. I think he wept partly in anger and frustration because this is not how God designed things to be. And perhaps, Yancey goes on, there's another reason. At that very moment, Jesus himself hung between two worlds, standing before a tomb, stinking of death, gave a portent of what lay before him in this damned, literally damned world. That his own death would end in resurrection did not reduce the fear or the pain. He was human. He had to pass through Golgotha to the other side. So Jesus comes to the tomb and he orders that the stone be rolled away. And he prays to his father. We read in verse 42, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they might believe that you sent me. This is important. Jesus' miracles were not divine tricks. 
They were all signs pointing people to who he was and to God's purpose to restore a broken world. And then the loud command, Lazarus, come out. And we read that Lazarus, bound in his grave clothes, staggers, shuffles, somehow makes it to the entrance of the tomb. We cannot begin to imagine the shock, the gasps, the jubilation. Mary and Martha are reunited with their brother and many believe, but but this story has a bizarre aftermath. Firstly, we read in chapter 12, verse 9, that the chief priests sought to cover up the miracle by killing Lazarus off again. It's the same reaction as to the healing of the blind man, with evidence of an astounding miracle walking around free in the person of Lazarus, they were desperate to destroy the evidence, and they may have succeeded. And secondly, the raising of Lazarus sealed Jesus' fate. We read that some of the Jews present believed and worshipped, but others reported the miracle to the Pharisees who called a meeting of the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, to discuss what to do about Jesus' increasing influence among the people. They felt threatened with the delicate power balance under Roman occupation. They were worried that the Romans would come and take away their position and their nation. And it's at this meeting that Caiaphas provides a cold-blooded solution. It is better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. Jesus will indeed die for all the people, but in a way that Caiaphas could never have imagined. So let's return to verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me even though they die, will live. And everyone who believes, lives and believes in me, will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. Martha didn't respond with laughter, but through tears. She expressed faith and hung on to Jesus in pain and grief. She hadn't yet experienced the joy on the other side. So as we approach Passion Tide, what's our answer? Do you believe this? We're not asked to tick yes, no on a survey. As we approach Holy Week and Easter, we're called to something much deeper than that, to a belief of the heart, to a reawakening of commitment to the wonderful Saviour who died and rose again to defeat death. 
were called to cling to Jesus in the bad times and the good times. So this week, as Palm Sunday approaches, will you take time to reread this chapter and let its words sink into your soul, no matter what you're facing at the moment? Will you use these coming weeks to recommit yourself to your relationship with the living Jesus Christ through prayer and through reading his word? Will you echo Martha's words, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. Amen.